We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to another Water Cooler Conversation. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. The question, what is a woman, has become the barbecue stopper of this election, thanks in part to the pre-selection of a courageous and outspoken candidate in the seat of Warringah in northern Sydney. Catherine Deves is a campaigner for the rights of women and girls to be able to keep biological men out of women's sports. She believes that the qualification for womanhood is biology, not identity, which today is considered a controversial claim. In a matter of weeks, Catherine Deves has achieved a level of recognition which other candidates could only dream of. But the price has been a vicious and intimidating attack that would have driven some into hiding. The mainstream media, by and large, has joined in the pylon, yet outside the media bubble, people are seizing the opportunity to have their say. Regardless of what happens at the polls, Deves has already achieved more than many MPs managed to do in their entire parliamentary careers. She's listened to the fears of women and girls and become their champion at a time when feminism is becoming unfashionable. Catherine joins me for the water cooler conversation. Let's start by asking (laughs) you the normal questions, the questions you'd ask anybody Mm -hmm. in your position, a new candidate. Tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Sydney and we lived in Narrabourne. Uh, My father's an ENT surgeon and my mother uh, was a midwife. And my father couldn't find a job in Sydney, so we moved up to the Central Coast. So he got a job at Gosford uh, Hospital, and I was raised in the suburb of Wyoming, so (laughs) the Australian suburbs in the 80s, uh, which was a a wonderful childhood. It was very free. You could ride your bike around the neighbourhood, roam in packs of children. Um, And then my parents moved to a property at Arimba uh, when I was 12 and I went to boarding school in Sydney. I went to Abbotsley uh, and I had a wonderful time there. It was, a, it was a wonderful opportunity and many of the girls that I boarded with are still my close friends today. Did you play sport? I did. Uh, so being at Abbotsley, we were offered a great range of sport. My winter sport was hockey, so field hockey. Uh, but I was also able to participate uh, in swimming, cricket, tennis. Uh, the skiing team um, didn't quite reach the heights of my opponent, but I did get down to the inter-school moguls, you know, in 1993 down at Threadbow. Uh, so, yeah, there was, sport was a big part of our lives at school because this is pre-social media. So in the afternoons, there wasn't much else to do but go and find something to do on the on the playing fields. So we'll come on to <laughs> the aspect of sport which you you've become well known for later on in the interview. But mm-hmm. but basically, if you you know what it's like to play sport. You you mm-hmm. you can picture what it would be like. Yes. If you had to compete against a biological man at sport. That's right. Uh, testosterone is a wonder drug. And it manifests <laughs> at puberty, and males are faster, bigger, taller, stronger. And if you have a female comparative height, weight, age, uh, and skill in a particular sport, she will be outperformed by a male. Anywhere from you know ten percent in speed with sprinting, all the way through to two hundred and sixty percent in punching power. We simply can't compete. <laughs> Just to bring your life story up to date, so mm. you. 
You didn't go to university straight after school, did you? Or? Uh, I did. I went off to UTS. Uh, I did a year of business, but that actually wasn't for me. So I uh, uh, transitioned into a degree, which was a Bachelor of Arts in Communication, in Public Communication. And I undertook that in a part-time capacity because I was determined to make my own way and pay my own way through university. And I did a year overseas in my final year at School of Communication at University of Miami in Florida. Mm, that must be fantastic. Oh, I lived on campus uh, just in a suburb called Coral Gables. That's where the campus was uh, for one semester. And then I lived on South Beach. So with uh, another Australian girl and a Cuban girl, we shared a, a very large um, studio flat. And the way you got around South Beach was on rollerblades. So... <laughs> We had a great six months living it up on South Beach. And when did you first start to get an inkling that you were interested in politics or, or, or issues or affairs? From a very young age, uh, my great-grandfather was John Henry Keating, who was the youngest senator uh, in the first parliament. So he was a framer of the constitution. He was a, a constitutional barrister, a member of the Nationalist Party. So... Growing up in my home, even in Wyoming, we had this fabulous document on the wall that has an original document that was signed by each of the first parliamentarians. Uh, and I would walk past that multiple time, times a day and I'd heard all the wonderful stories about him. My mother grew up in Canberra. Uh, so I'd always had a great interest in the political side of things um, in Australia. You studied law? I did. At which university? So I did the Legal Profession Admission Board through University of Sydney mm -hmm. as a mature age student. As a mature age student, were you ever tempted to get involved in student politics? I guess not. Uh, I had 18-month-old twins when I started my degree, so I didn't have a lot of spare time. Um, and then my third child came along halfway through uh, the degree. So for me, it was pretty much children studying um I have my partner, David. Uh, he runs a small business as a tradesman. Uh, so it was a very busy time. And I also worked part-time as a legal throughout those years, As a sorry, as a paralegal throughout those years. So um, quite a busy time. I think people who don't know Warringah, sometimes mm -hmm. the electorate of Warringah, often get a mistaken impression of it. They, they think that it's all Mossman. You know, it's all nice houses overlooking mm -hmm. the water and, mm -hmm. you know, BMWs and Teslas. On every corner, I, I'm a cyclist, and and okay. I, I, so I've cycled through that area. It's, it's good yeah. cycling territory, right? There's some good yes. hills, so I've got the feel of it a bit. It's not, it, it's a very varied electorate, isn't it? Of course, there's Mossman, but then mm -hmm. there's some very, you know, much more sort of can I say ordinary mortgage belt sort of places where you imagine people on, on you know, good working people, tradesmen, those kind mm -hmm. of people live. Is have I got that right? It's a mixture of. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So over in Mossman um, and also around parts of the Northern Beaches now, Freshwater, Curl Curl, there are some uh, very wealthy people with beautiful homes overlooking the water. Uh, but there very much is a, a mortgage belt. Uh, that's where I live. I live in a street that's full of tradies, full, mm. of, full of utes and work vehicles, um, where you do have two hardworking parents. Um, oftentimes both parents go out to work doing the juggle, trying to pay for uh, school fees or soccer boots or French horn lessons, um, trying to balance the budget, um, you know, and, and living month to month. Yes, there are a lot of people like that in the electorate. Do you get the impression that 
much of the things that get talked about in elections, you know, in the media, mm. and also by some candidates, just don't really touch on the concerns of people like that. You know, who right now, mm-hmm. with you know, we're we're talking on the day, interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, yes, so there's, there's the prospect of rises in the mortgage. What about you? But I was. I've just been shocked by some of the, the prices you've got to pay in shops these days, just, just for ordinary groceries. That must be, you know, if you've got a family and you're mm-hmm. struggling to to pay off your bills anyway, mm-hmm. it's a very different world, isn't it, from the world of, you know, Twitter and mm-hmm. <laughs> climate change. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, I mean, you mentioned before this interview, ten dollars for cauliflower. I've seen nine dollars for broccoli. If you nine dollars for broccoli. Yes. <laughs> if you if you have a growing family um, and you're trying to fill the fridge, I mean these uh, prices, these price increases in basic groceries are absolutely biting mm. uh, the people of Warringah. And I think that there there are certain uh, sections of the electorate um, who are, are focusing on things that are simply, you know, not affordable for many people. You know, when you're talking about solar panels and electric vehicles, uh, you know, and just in simply installing a battery in your home, I mean, even with subsidies, mm. they're expensive. I can't afford an electric car. Um, I would like to have solar panels on my roof, but I can't afford to, to put them on because I live in a house that's 100 years old the red clay tiles are, are breaking and I can't afford to put a new roof on my mm-hmm. house to put the solar panels on. So it's simply not a reality for many ordinary Australians. It's almost like there's two conversations going on, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, so with respect to, you know, my opponent, I mean, she talks about all these strategies to do with climate action, but when you're having to decide between paying the credit card or paying the mortgage... Um, that seems those issues seem very far removed from your daily reality. Mm. And of course, and I'm not just talking about your opponent, but I'm talking here about Labor Party, the Green mm-hmm. Party. It seems to me they're often very. I'm going to use the word sly at hiding <laughs> the real cost of this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Anthony Albanese is saying he's going to knock, I think, three hundred and eighty dollars off your power bill. I mean, I don't see how he can do that, mm-hmm. and all the investment that it's going to have to put in in, in solar, wind, mm-hmm. new transmission in particular. The, the, the cost, though, is the big issue for people, I think. Yeah, that's, uh, that's correct. I mean, if we look at um, basing our electrical grid on renewables, it is going to cost. The cost to do that is just going to be in the many, many billions of dollars. So that cost will have to be passed on. Uh, in the form of electricity bills, and many families will simply mm. not be able to absorb that shock. Mm. Mm. I think that's right. Let's just pick up on the the idea again that there's a disconnect sometimes between the political conversation mm-hmm. and what people are actually thinking or worried about. Just just give me a off the top of your head. You've been out there in shopping mm-hmm. centres on the doorstep. What proportion of people? Well, let's put it another way. For every 10 people you meet, how many are likely to say to you, what are you going to do about climate change, Catherine, as opposed to people that will raise other issues, whether it's cost of living mm-hmm. or um, schooling or healthcare, other things? Say, if I'm talking to people and that's the first thing they would mention, I'd say about one in 10. Mm. For most people, as you, you just said, it's cost of living pressures. 
Uh, it is it's schooling, it's services for the aged, it's mental health and suicide. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's mental health and suicide. Uh, but with respect to climate action, if I have a long conversation with them, it might come up. I probably I, I would say I've talked about national security right. more often than I have talked about uh, climate action as a first issue that they've brought up. And is that prompted by China, the Philipp- uh, what they're doing in the Solomon Islands, um, mm-hmm. Ukraine, those kind of things? Uh, yes, absolutely. There's been a few times I've been standing in the rain at 730 in the morning discussing uh, national security issues and people being concerned about what's happening in the Solomon Islands uh, and and the Ukraine, even details about AUKUS. For me, at least, one of the problems with with candidates like Zali Stegel is, is, is she's, she's single issue, right? Mm-hmm. One cause only. Mm-hmm. She's very passionate about that cause and, and that's good in itself. But in the end, you have to make trade-offs in policy, don't mm-hmm. you? And, and you can't, if you, if, if you look at everything through the climate change lens and you don't consider national security or keeping our economy strong, yeah. you know, things are going to go downhill pretty quickly. I think uh, my opponent has a rather myopic view on climate action because it traverses every aspect of our national interest, you know, national security, energy security, uh, food security. And if you are involved with a group like Climate 200 that has made no secret of the fact that they are large-scale commercial solar panel interests, Mm. you know, the focus becomes very narrow. And she's not taking into consideration, you know, I mean, there's no details on these policies. There's no there's no costings and she's not taking into consideration what some of her ideas might do to other aspects um, of our society. Mm. It was a big thing nonetheless when she was elected. Um, yes. Uh, it was a, a, a massive news story. Previous, you know, previous former prime minister is knocked out of a seat that he'd held for 21 years, I think, by, by a novice. Um, mm-hmm. So good on it. But the story at the time was that mm-hmm. everybody had voted for because she was going to bring more action on climate change. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that was actually true. What's your impression talking to people? Was that their main motivation for voting for her? I think their electorate was just ready for something different. Um, and I believe the way she was perceived was to be sort of liberal leaning, you know, big L liberal leaning. Um but having to be a female and having to have an interest in climate change, and she was just something different. Mm. Um, so that's why people voted. But getting out there on the hustings, there's been a number of people who've said to me, oh, look, I voted Zali last time uh, and won't be doing the same this time. Mm. Why, why is that? What kind of reasons are put forward? Well, I think having an independent there for three years after having someone like Mr Abbott, who was the Prime Minister, uh, could affect change, could affect proper representation in Canberra. And then we see, you know, an independent who has said, I'm going to go to Canberra to make a lot of noise and think to myself, well, that's pretty much all you're doing on the crossbench because your marquee piece, uh, the climate change bill, you know, it didn't even go to a vote. So I think people are seeing how difficult it is if you are an independent to get things through. Yeah, and and... She, now, Zali Stegel is not even arguing for the victory of one party or another. She wants a hung parliament. She wants a, a parliament like the one we had with Julia mm-hmm. Gillard and Bob Brown. And, and uh, 
that's what she's actively saying, right? And that scares me. I'm sure it must scare a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, we're not set up to to have independence holding government to hostage. Mm. We're a Westminster system. It's a two-party preferred system. Um, and when we have these independents holding the balance of power and saying, I'm going to vote for the legislation on its merits, in my view, that doesn't stand up because as an independent, sometimes they are handed the legislation that morning to consider and then vote on, whereas you've had the party, uh, the party in government, who might have spent days, weeks, even months hammering out that piece of legislation in the party room and considering it from all angles. Um, even the opposition gets it uh, several days before at least, but when you have the independents considering it on its merits and she's only got hours to do so, I don't, I, like, that's not a basis on which she can operate. It's also not a fair democracy in my view, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, just because you, you happen to snag victory as an independent in seat X, mm-hmm. you know, pushing cause Y, mm-hmm. Why should you hold the rest of the country to ransom just mm-hmm. to get your point of view, right? It's just not right. Yeah. It's, it's not doesn't help the national interest. That's right. Well, with these uh, teal independents, they owe it to their electorates to tell them how they are going to vote. You know, that the voters have a right to know where they're going to sit when very important pieces of legislation come up because, as we've seen with... Um, Zali, you know, she's voted two out of three times with Labor Greens. And that's not representative of Warringah. We are a liberal heartland. So when she has done that, she's not representing the people, in my view. Well, I mean, her voting record alone mm-hmm. says that any, if you, you think she's going to back the coalition in a hung parliament, you must be dreaming, right? Mm. I mean, we know which way she's going to go. We just like to hear from her own mouth. I think just out of a sense of honesty and decency, Yes, the, the voters deserve that, don't they? They do. It, it's uncertain, mm. uh, and the voters deserve better than that. They they deserve to know where their representative is going to sit when it comes to those important votes in Canberra. Now, just the mechanics of the campaign, because campaigning is expensive, right? Mm-hmm. You have to raise, you know, in a con- in a contest like this, you've got mm-hmm. to raise a fair bit of money. <laughs> yes, Zali looks as if she's got a fair bit of money behind her again. Mm-hmm. Where's that money coming from? I think we'd all like to know the answer to that. Mm. Um, but yes, around the electorate, um, you know, her volunteers, they're very well resourced. They have all the bits and pieces. She's got offices up at Spit Junction. Two uh, offices, I see. Up yeah, there. two offices, uh, along with her Commonwealth office, uh, also an electric bus. So yes, it would be very interesting to know where that money's coming from. And, you know, with the Climate 200 independence, Interesting to know where the money's coming from with respect to Simon Holmes Accord. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, uh, fair's fair. Where's your money coming from? Uh, My money's coming from, uh, so the Warringah FEC, uh, we had some money in the kitty thanks to Mr Abbott uh, and also just grassroots donations, Hmm. Uh, just lots of people giving what they can. Absolutely. So we are absolutely running a grassroots campaign in Warringah. Uh, we have a lot of very dedicated volunteers um, and we are making our budget stretch a long way this time. So no great donations from fossil companies or all the things they throw at you. That just doesn't happen, does it? I mean, I know that because I, mm-hmm. I, I follow the pattern of donations and those companies just do not give large amounts of money full stop, even if even if we were going to accept them. So that's that's 
a myth, one of the many myths they throw out, mm. isn't it, to try and deflect you? Well, I haven't seen a, a hundred thousand dollar check show up from the Cole family, so no. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go to what makes you passionate. What 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 are the issues that really make you passionate? That you think I want to go into Parliament to make a difference on these things? Well, it's my three daughters who get me out of bed in the morning. Um, and I feel that they deserve to have a voice in Parliament that little girls' voices absolutely do, particularly with respect to the sports issue. Uh, but furthermore, as I've articulated, I live in the mortgage belt of Warringah. It is a very wealthy, prosperous electorate, but there are people doing it tough who are having to make choices between soccer boots and French horn lessons for their children. Um, and when we look at, you know, Menzies' forgotten people speech with respect to the middle class, I represent that middle class because I am living that life. Uh, you know, I've come from a bit of a diverse background. I've done my law degree. I've worked for a big wine corporation. I've worked for a small winery over in Northern California where I had to travel all over the United States uh, and we managed to double production under the wine label. So I've done a few interesting things in my life and I think bringing that real world experience to Canberra is really important because I know what it's like. Uh, you know, my partner runs a small business um, sitting up till, you know, midnight trying to get invoicing and quotes out and then getting up at five o'clock in the morning to get the kids off to, you know, band practice. Mm. Uh, so, so I've lived that life and I think it's really important to have that real world experience represented in Canberra. Mm. Well, people watching this might think I'm giving you the soft interview. I'm not. Okay. Let's get to the issue everybody seems to <laughs> want to talk about with you and that's the issue of... Um, the way I see it is 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 a the need to have a debate about some of the difficult and awkward things we we should be discussing mm -hmm. um, if we're going to jump on board with this you know the full transgender right thing. Now, mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but to me it boils down to this. Right, it, it starts with how you define a woman, and for all my life, uh, indeed for all human history. It was defined biologically. Right? Mm -hmm. a, a, a woman was an adult female human being. That's right. Uh, and then um, without most people noticing, things started to change mm -hmm. within the last 15 years probably. Uh, and there was a push on to make the definition of a woman somebody who identifies as a woman. Am, am I right up to now? Is that you understand? That's right. Yes. And and that view that it should be you, your right to identify as a woman um, should prevail over over biology. That's right. And and from that you get all sorts of really difficult legal social issues around how does this work in practice. Mm -hmm. One of which you've highlighted, which is transgender mm -hmm. sport. Is it really as simple as that? Well, when we are no longer able to define what a woman is, and it's also woman and man were removed from the via amendments in 2013 uh, by the Gillard government. So the definition of man and woman were taken out of the Sex Discrimination Act. And if we cannot define what a woman is, that it is an adult human female, then Women's rights, the, resor the resources we dedicate to women, uh, women's spaces, uh, they cease to have meaning 
Because if all anyone has to do, or if all anything, if a man simply has to identify as a woman to gain access uh, to those things, then then we've lost women's rights. So if we cannot defend the fundamental definition, then what is the point of of any of it for women? Catherine, you just told me something I didn't know, but I'm embarrassed because I should have known. <laughs> uh, my excuse is that the Gillard government boasted of the amount of legislative rubbish that they push through the parliament day mm-hmm. after day. They, that was their big boast, you know. Mm-hmm. Never never mind the quality, feel the wits. That's their yeah. attitude. But what, what you're saying is that they passed legislation in 2013 removing the definition of a man and a woman from yeah. the... Federal, so from the Sex Discrimination Act. So that's where a lot of this confusion stems from. Yeah. Then but that, at the time, that was not a big... Nobody wasn't headlines no. in the papers, was it? No, it was um, after the Omnibus uh, Human Rights Bill fell over. Um, and this was a bit of a, a, you know, just a little agreement with the people who were pushing uh, erasing sex out of law and policy. So there is a push to erase the concept of sex and replace it with gender identity. Uh, and they they did this without any broad community consultation. I looked through the parliamentary papers. There was no consideration given to what it would mean for women and girls should their definition be lost. Mm. And that happened in the dying days of the Gillard government. And then not long after that, the Attorney General's department put out uh, the guidelines to sex and, and gender identity. Uh, and there's an astonishing sentence in there that says sex and gender identity are conceptually distinct, but they can be used interchangeably. So this has led to a huge amount of confusion in law and policy. Because this just amazes me. I mean, we, we, the moment we've got a debate going on about a constitutional change mm-hmm. to recognise a voice for First Nations people or Indigenous people in the parliament. Mm-hmm. And they're saying to do that, we've got to have a referendum, right? Which mm-hmm. means a full national debate. Usually, we'll, you know, there'll be government funding for both sides of the argument. We get to mm-hmm. talk about it endlessly and then we make up our minds. Now, here we're talking about something which seems to me to be at least equally, but to my mind, probably a, a lot more important, which mm-hmm. is whether we define women as, as purely biological mm-hmm. or whether we say any, basically, um, you know, if, if you feel you're a, a woman, you are a woman. Yet that, there was no debate that I, I recall, unless mm-hmm. I missed something. No. Certainly no referendum or mm-hmm. change to the constitution, not that we'd probably need one for that. But isn't this at, at heart, it just boils down to this, doesn't it? People want a say in these things. If you are going to define what it means to be a man and a woman, the people need to know that that was happening and they needed to be able to have a say. Um, Women weren't involved in in that debate at all. The lobby groups who pushed it represented the interests of the people who want to erase sex and law and policy. Um, And there was no due consideration given to the impact on women and girls. It was extraordinary. This side of... uh the argument, which I guess is really the basis of your case, mm-hmm. I've never seen it reported by anybody who's who's mm-hmm. you know written in outraged terms about mm-hmm. your your agenda about against transphobic or against against tra- transgender people mm-hmm. or transphobic agenda against yeah. you know which of course is, seems to me the complete 
uh, a complete misreading of what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at the time when they made the amendments, they also put in gender identity, they put in sexual orientation and intersex, and like, there's no constitutional basis. Um, I would argue that those statutes are even constitutionally invalid because the purpose of the Sex Discrimination Act was to give effect to CEDAW. So that was enlivened under the external affairs power. CEDAW is about biological women and it includes sport, it includes making sure that women have equal access to sport. Um, in CEDAW, uh, at the time in 1984 when the Sex Discrimination Act um, was enacted, that uh, convention was seen as so important it was uh, put in as, as a schedule verbatim into the legislation. Um, now, there's no mention of gender identity or sexual orientation or, or intersex, so I would even argue that it is constitutionally invalid. I mean, I'm not saying that people who wish to be gender diverse or who have a different sexual orientation or an intersex condition aren't you know, entitled to have lives free from discrimination and legislation that should... Um, uh, should protect them from discrimination, but the Sex Discrimination Act isn't isn't the place for it. Mm, mm. Well, this is this is it's not the first time, of course, we've gone. You know, they've been poorly worded, or yes, maybe that's to put it generously, adventurously worded mm-hmm. legislation in the human rights sphere that has yeah. gone off beam. I mean, mm. we have we we argue about section section sixteen C of the Race mm. Discrimination Act, which yeah. which is basically we see as a a restriction on free speech. Mm. That was legislation introduced by the Keating mm. government in its yeah. dying days. It, we just need to be able to have a debate about this. And, and I guess one of the first things you'd like to do in Parliament is to try and pass legislation to correct this sort of overreach by, by, by the law. Is that right? That's right, because it is a collision of rights. When we talk about sex and gender identity, you know, you have females biologically female, that is observable, objective, immutable, up against a category of people with a self-declared gender identity where it is, you know, it's it's subjective, it's declared, it's nebulous, it's vague. So if you have these two groups coming into collision, say with sports, where women are saying, we would like to have a female-only sports category, and then you, and we would like to exclude people of the male sex on that basis, and we should be able to by virtue of Section 42 of the Sex Discrimination Act. But then you have these males who say, well, I have a female gender identity. If you exclude me, that is discrimination. That is a clear collision of rights. And we should be able to discuss it. Um, We should be able to debate having legislation put in place that will clarify that. Uh, Senator Claire Chandler, I know, um, has put forward her Save Women's Sports Bill in an effort to, to clarify that collision. Uh, and I think she's done a very good job there, and I would like to support her bill should I, I get to Parliament. So it is an issue that is, is close to my heart, but I think it can be very easily resolved if we can just simply clarify it. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just 
$10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. I'm going to talk generically about <clears throat> okay. conservatives. I'm not going to talk about specific conservatives. The The trouble time and time again, it seems to me, is is on the left, there are activists that want to do more and more and more, and they mm. push and push and push. And conservatives just sit on their hand and say nothing, often mm-hmm. out of a sense of, we don't want to get involved in this. It's a messy debate, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Uh, and, and look, I, I'm speaking... Um, for myself in this too, it, it, I, I was the same on this issue. I, transgender, yeah. I thought, well, yeah, maybe I'll write a column about it one day, but not this week, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, until something happened, which was the Victorian legislation last year, mm-hmm. which, which we might talk about another time that just made me think, no, no, we've got to write about this. Yes. It seems to me there is a sort of point at which people in public life wake up and say, well, this isn't a fringe issue anymore. This is mm. central Mm-hmm. To the to the way we conceive of people, society, the way we conceive of the right to everybody for equal dignity and equal respect. Mm-hmm. Was there that point for you? So for me, I'd been following what had been happening over in the UK. The same similar debates happening there a few years ahead of us um, with respect to what has happened. But for me, it was when. Uh, there were some guidelines put out by the AHRC and Sport Australia where they were effectively erasing the category of sex in sport and replacing it with gender identity. Um, Then in October 2020, Pride in Sport, which is a function of ACON, which is the AIDS Council of New South Wales, uh, came out, um, had partnered with eight of the big sporting organisations in Australia to say that those policies had been implemented within those sports. And I realised this was all going one way and there was no one standing up and speaking for the little girls and the young women who may not want to compete against males um, and that there were obviously issues about uh, fair competition and player safety that needed to be discussed. We couldn't just sit there and say, well, if you criticise these policies, you're unkind, you're being... Not ex- you're not being inclusive, you're being a bigot. And it's like, look, I'm sorry, but if we put 16-year-olds on the rugby field, one's a male, one's a female, there's going to be problems. You uh, bet. Yes. So, I mean, statistically uh, we know this. I mean, Claire, mm. Claire Chandler has showed me these statistics about mm. the, the, the increased likelihood of injury yes. in a contact sport like that. Yeah, combat, collision, contact sports... Uh, There's also the issue of little girls self-excluding, girls who come from different religious or cultural backgrounds uh, where, you know, we're only just starting to get them to participate in sports from Mm. from particular religions and so on. And now, you know, if they're being sent off on their netball camp and there's going to be a 15-year-old boy on their team, their parents might withdraw them. So we're putting up barriers to entry for young girls and no one was bringing up those arguments. No. So that's that's when I felt that I needed to say something because nobody else was, uh, and that turned into Save Women's Sport Australasia. And and just to be clear, this is this this is a, the central issue on which you've spoken. Mm-hmm. But it is just only one manifestation of the, the yeah. problems you get into once mm-hmm. you decide to change the definition of a woman. Because you know mm-hmm. we've seen this in in Britain. I think the same problem here with prisons. Mm-hmm. 
anywhere where there's, you know, the need for people mm. to be in a more intimate kind yeah. of environment mm -hmm. and where they might feel their safety might be compromised, this issue comes up. Yeah, wherever women and children are vulnerable. So we've seen incidences in prisons, um, also domestic violence shelters, uh, rape crisis centres, sexual assault support groups. This is happening in Australia. Uh, and we've all seen what's happened to me in the media over the last few weeks for uh, trying to raise some of these issues around sport. But women are afraid to speak up because they are getting kicked out of volunteer groups such as the Australian Breastfeeding Association for insisting on using the word mother. Um, they are getting... That's actually happening. That, that's happened. It, is, it has happened. Um, there are women who are losing their jobs who are being disciplined at work for speaking about these issues and, you know, complaining about mixed-sex toilets and, and things like that. So this issue is, is broad. It's, it, it is impacting many aspects of society. Uh, but when you do stand up and say, I disagree with this, could we have a conversation about this, uh, you are sanctioned. On the one hand, you can have those arguments, and that doesn't stop you being have a basically a live and let live attitude to all Australians. I mean, providing they don't break the law or mm -hmm. what people want to do, you know, however they want to dress, however they want to identify, pure, what they do between consenting adults—that's completely their business. Most mm -hmm. Australians would think that way, I think, and, and presumably yeah. you you're of that mind too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I voted for same-sex marriage. I have no issues with people who want to be gender diverse, how they want to present, how they want to dress. But when it comes to this issue, it's a collision of rights and they are not easy conversations to have. They are highly emotive. Uh, things need to be debated. The competing rights need to be balanced. And sometimes people might not get everything that they want and they become upset. But I just keep saying, what about the women and girls who are losing out on these, you know, male-free spaces that they might need to recover from trauma or spaces where they are vulnerable or in a state of undress or asleep, you know, sort of semi-public spaces like in, uh, say, dormitories or things like that where they should have the right to feel safe when they're asleep. And if we cannot assure women and girls that they are allowed to have boundaries, that they are allowed to say no... Uh, you know, we shouldn't be told that we're unkind or bigoted for arguing for that. Mm. I want to move on to one other aspect of the transgender debate, which has troubled me. And like all of it, it's difficult to talk about, but we must. And, that, and that's the, the issue of affirmative therapy. This is, you know, if, how you deal with somebody, particularly we're talking here, I think, about minors, teenagers, mm -hmm. who feel that they, they're confused about their identity, perhaps they, they think they may want to transition. What advice do we give them? Now, the law in Victoria, which has locked this into statute, but it's pretty much the same across the country, says if you're a, a psychiatrist, if you're a doctor, if you're a parent, if you're a priest, mm -hmm. the only valid thing to do is just to affirm it and say, well, if you are what you feel, and if you feel you want to change your, your gender go ahead, we'll mm -hmm. help you. In Victoria, as I understand the new legislation that the Dan Andrews government put in, if I was, say, a local priest and I said, well, let's think about that, maybe mm -hmm. we'll go away and have a quiet prayer and maybe I'll read you a bit of the Bible, yeah. that would be against the law in Victoria. 
Have I got that right? Because that's really troubling to me. Well, I think that we are failing these children if we are concretizing their identity when they're children or adolescents and in a state of flux and extravagant emotion. And we know that, uh, you know, teenagers are suffering uh, great distress and, and mental health issues um, in these current generations for a variety of reasons. Um, but they're being presented with this uh, concept of, you know, changing their gender as a solution to often uh, complicated, multifaceted issues in their life. And I think denying them the right to have exploratory, compassionate therapy, where instead of saying, oh, you, you're a girl, but you think you're a boy, okay, you are a boy. Instead of turning around and saying, well, can you tell me about that? Why do you feel that way? What's going on to make you feel that way? We are denying these children the right to explore these feelings. Um, and the, the issue with this is when we affirm these identities, then they also have medicalized solutions and surgical solutions to this distress they are feeling about themselves and allowing children to make decisions uh, that will render them infertile, uh, have surgeries that are, are irreversible, that have a huge host of medical implications, everything from osteopenia to having to have a hysterectomy due to atrophying uh, uterus, uh, heart attacks, cancers, uh, reduced height, the list goes on and on. These are experimental treatments. Uh, I think it's one thing if you're an adult and you've had many years of therapy and decide to transition. I have friends who've made those decisions. They are very comfortable in that. They have uh, had informed consent. Uh, they understand the implications of these procedures. But asking a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old mm. to potentially give up their future fertility, uh, I don't think there is no informed consent there. No. So I no. think other countries, Sweden, Finland, UK, France, have either uh, withdrawn those options for children or have urged extreme caution. Mm. And we need to be having those same conversations here in Australia and we need to be looking at these other countries and see, consider why they're doing what they're doing uh, instead of ploughing ahead here in Australia and acting as if it's all affirmative and kind and inclusive. It seems to me that there's every reason why a teenager might be confused. I mean, we, we produced this report mm -hmm. last year, which is now... I think you're at the launch of the policy on at the weekend, keeping children safe online, highlighting the dangers the kids face online mm -hmm. from a whole range of things, one of which is sort of peer pressure bullying. Mm -hmm. But it does seem to me that if you're if you're in a in a professional role or a parental role or a or a, a spiritual role trying to counsel or help those people, mm -hmm. it is your responsibility to explore all the options. And yet we're not helping kids are we in that way we're saying okay if you think it's because you need to change gender then you change gender well we don't allow children to vote or smoke or get tattoos mm. so why would we allow them to essentially change their gender and have irreversible surgeries it doesn't make sense and then why would we sanction the professionals who are there to help the children and parents especially. I mean, the vast majority of parents do their best for their children and to deny them the right to help them where they would be able to guide their child through uh, what might be a difficult time and just allow them space to explore without agreeing with them um, necessarily 
Uh, I think, you know, we're denying parental rights there. There's a whole host of issues that this that this raises. Well, it's a big topic. It's, <laughs> it's a difficult one to talk about, but it takes courage. You've, you've stepped out there. You've done what most haven't. Mm-hmm. The last three weeks must have been very difficult with the mm-hmm. pressure you were under trying to conduct a, a campaign while being smeared and your name blackened mm-hmm. in the media and social media. Have you felt at any point that you were just going to give it up and go and hide under a rock? I've always been very determined. Um, and there have, of course, there have been some dark moments. It was a, a media onslaught that I was unprepared for. So to sort of, you know, put yourself forward to represent your community, then 48 hours later find that you're the most the, the candidate getting the most media, second only to the Prime Minister. It's an extraordinary experience to go through. What happened to me demonstrates what happens when you go against the status quo. Um, and it simply galvanised my motivation to continue to stand up because they were trying to silence me for views that most Australians agree with. Uh, particularly with the relation to the sports. Um, and it just goes to show that how important it is to have people who are willing to stand up and, and challenge the status quo and ask difficult questions and not back down when people start, try to silence you because they don't like what you have to say. But it must hurt you. I mean, it must hurt you personally to have these things said about you. Or do you manage just to brush over them? You have to grow a very thick skin uh, very quickly. And uh, I removed myself from looking at media and social media. Uh, I had other people who stepped in and began to monitor that for me. I made sure that I talked to the people who know me best uh, who, and who understand I am not that person that was being portrayed in the press. And, of course, you know, you hear these people saying these things, you know, the Twitter pile on, I mean, Twitter is not a real place, but what would hurt me is when there were people that I had respected, like mm. within my own life and also professional people who were joining in on the pile on, you know, people I'd always admired uh, who don't know me, who clearly did not understand the argument. That's when it hurt. Your predecessor, Tony Abbott, would have been <laughs> able to give you a little bit of advice on this, no doubt. I mean, he'd been in it different situation but he was similarly faced with this kind of thing towards the end of his career wasn't he? He very much was I understand that he withstood this sort of onslaught in Moringa for almost two years and I'd had two weeks and he he did ring me to check in with me to see how I was going you know just reach out as one human to another who'd been through sort of both of us going through an extraordinary experience and I will always be grateful for that and I have a lot of admiration for him continuing to stand up and I've had people reach out to me from all over the political spectrum to offer their support other people who are in public life uh, other women because it's a sort of it's a strange club that you join here but (laughs) The amount of support I've had from the Australian people, thousands of messages of support telling me to keep going, uh, people just touching me on their elbow saying, you know, please keep going, don't give in uh, when I'm out on hustings. Uh, that's what's given me the strength to get up and continue to go out there every day of this campaign. How do you find it when you're out there in the shopping centres or around the streets or whatever? How do people approach you? How do, how do they talk to you? Overwhelmingly, they are supportive. 
most people want to have a conversation. Um, obviously, when you're on transit stops, people can be rushing to or from work. But I've had many positive uh, conversations. Uh, people have brought up issues that are important to them. Of course, I've encountered a few people who disagree with me and disagree quite vehemently. But oftentimes, you can you can tell quite quickly that they're they're just wanting to pick a fight or be hostile and you know, you just remain calm and you try to address the issues and you try to either move on or have someone step in if they are getting quite hostile. But I could probably count on one or two hands how many times that's actually happened. Mm. So I've had a really positive experience out there mm. on hustings. That's terrific. Mm. So I won't ask you to <laughs> uh, to make any predictions about May 21st, but um, you're looking forward to it. I very much am. I think this whole election uh, is playing out in a very interesting way. There's so many moving parts and, you know, May 21st is going to be a real nail-biter in a, in a lot of electorates and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it all plays out. Well, in case anybody watching or listening to this doesn't know your name, Catherine <laughs> Deves is the name. You're the Liberal candidate for Warringah. Mm-hmm. All the best. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you for having me on the show. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Listener.